Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Bearable Stories, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for July 15, 2018. All sorrows can be borne, the Danish writer Isaac Denison once said, if you put them into a story. I wonder if the writer of this week's gospel reading would agree. Do all sorrows have shape and sense? Do all of our experiences have meanings we can craft into bearable stories? A faithless king forsakes his own wife to marry his brothers. When a prophet condemns a dishonorable marriage, the king's new wife seethes, and the king, ignoring his conscience, imprisons a truth-telling prophet. Soon afterwards, the king throws himself a birthday party, gets drunk, and invites his daughter to dance for his guests. Her performance pleases him so much that he promises her anything she desires, even up to half of his kingdom. The girl, spurred on by her mother, demands the imprisoned prophet's death. Unwilling to lose face in front of his guests, the king reluctantly keeps his promise. Before the birthday party is over, the girl receives the prophet's head on a platter. This is a story, sure enough. Is it a bearable one? Here's another. One day in the temple, an angel appears to an elderly priest. The angel promises the priest a son, a special child who will become a powerful prophet and forerunner of the Messiah. When the stunned priest doubts the angel's message, owing to his wife's advanced age and barrenness, the angel takes away his ability to speak. Nine months later, however, the angel's promise comes true, down to the last letter. The child is born, the overjoyed priest recovers his speech, and everyone who hears about the miracle birth is awestruck. With the sky-high expectations of his community ringing in his ears, the prophet grows up and takes to the wilderness. Eager to fulfill his vocation, he chooses an austere and arduous lifestyle. He calls everyone he meets, even the king of the land, to repentance, faithfulness, and justice. He prepares the way of the Lord, baptizes the Messiah, and eagerly announces the arrival of God's kingdom. But then? But then he lands in prison for speaking truth to power, suffers doubt and despair about the Messiah he thought he recognized, receives no solace or rescue from that Messiah, and gets his head chopped off during a birthday party to appease a clueless girl, a cruel-hearted queen, and a cowardly king. How's that for a bearable story? Maybe I haven't looked hard enough, but I can't find one shred of hope, redemption, or good news in the last chapter of John the Baptist's life. His is a heartbreaking and wholly senseless death. Of course, we Christians are trained to slap all kinds of redemptive meaning on tragedy. Nothing happens in this world unless God wills it, is one of the stories I grew up with. He never gives anyone more than they can bear is another. God has a plan is still another, and so is, for everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die. Those stories certainly have their merits, but some sorrows, like those that plague John's death, just plain don't fit into them. Most of the pious stories I've inherited as a Christian are not jagged enough. They're tepid and polite. They move to closure, redemption, and triumph too quickly. Where is the Christian story that can handle horror? Where is the Christian story that will sit in the darkness and trust that God is there too, instead of reaching too quickly and compulsively for brightness? What bothers me about John the Baptist's death, its gruesomeness notwithstanding, is its utter senselessness. John dies at the whim of a clueless teenager. He dies because a powerful woman has a callous heart and a lustful man has a shallow sense of honor. He dies for moral cowardice. He dies for a dance. In other words, John is one of those people, we all know them, who does everything right and then suffers anyway. Worse, he dies disillusioned and afraid, unsure of his Messiah. 
Worse still, he suffers a death that accomplishes nothing. No one is saved, no one is converted, and no one finds justice or mercy as a result of his execution. As Teresa of Avila purportedly told God, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. I've spent the past week trying to pummel John's death into something bearable, but I can't. So maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that it can't be pummeled into anything but what it is, an injustice, a travesty, a desecration. Maybe the point of this gospel lectionary is to indict all forms of transactional Christianity that promise us comfort, prosperity, and blessing in exchange for our good behavior. Maybe the point is that God does not exist to shield us from pain, sorrow, or premature death, however much it offends our sensibilities to admit this. Maybe the point is that we don't need to slap purpose or meaning on all human experience in order to prove our piety. Maybe some things are just plain horrible. Period. It's tempting to read a story like John the Baptist and tell ourselves that it's anachronistic, that it comes from a rougher, cruder, and more barbaric time. But of course the opposite is true. We still, right now, today, live in a world where faithlessness is an accepted norm. We still live in a world where the innocent are detained, imprisoned, tormented, and killed. We still live in a world of sudden and random violence. We still live in a world where young girls are made to be sexual objects for powerful men. And we still live in a world where speaking truth to power is a rare and revolutionary act. Closer to home, I still live in a world where I distance myself from people who tell me truths I'd rather not hear. I still live in a world where I worry more about sounding stupid or losing face than I do about practicing discretion, admitting my mistakes, and humbling myself in front of people I'm desperate to impress. I still live in a world where people within my reach live lonely lives and die meaningless deaths, and I barely notice. According to Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus heard of John's death, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Can we take this in? He didn't preach. He didn't turn the horror into a morality tale. He didn't minimize his loss with any version of pie in the sky by and by. He withdrew into silence. He sought solitude. He lingered over his pain and created space for it to spend itself. And then? Then he fed people. The feeding of the 5,000 directly follows John's death. Jesus came back from mourning, asked a crowd to sit down, gathered whatever bread and fish he could find, and fed people. How much more credible and relevant we, his followers, would be if we'd follow Jesus' example as we confront the world's ongoing horrors? Some things are too terrible for words. Some hurts can't be salvaged with a neat story. So honor the silence, create space for grief, mourn freely, and when you're ready, feed the people around you whatever you've got. Somehow it will be enough, even if you can't explain how or why. This is how we make the sorrows bearable. For books this week, Jan reviews The Once and Future Liberal, After Identity Politics by Mark Lilla. The time of Trump has provoked serious soul-searching amid both Republicans and Democrats. On the right, David Frum, a speechwriter for President George W. Bush, recently published his book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. In his new manifesto about the liberal left, Mark Lilla, professor of the humanities at Columbia University and a self-identified centrist liberal, bemoans the failures of Democrats. And he does so by an incendiary critique of the left's most sacred cow, identity politics. If you go to the homepage of the Democratic Party and scroll down to the bottom of the page, you'll find a link for People. Click on that link and you'll find 17 distinct groups, women, LGBT, Hispanics, and so on. Instead of casting a vision for what, it, for what unites our entire country, instead of gathering us together in what we all share in common, 
the left has become obsessed with divisive, narrow, exclusionary, and hyper-individualistic identities. Instead of building consensus and pulling us all together, says Lilla, identity politics does the opposite. It fractures and fragments us into our self-interested groups. The strategy guarantees failure, says Lilla. The focus on identity movements distracts progressives from the more important task of politics and doing the more mundane business of actually winning elections. Over and over, Lilla repeats the word common, our common good, our common future, our common destiny, our common goals, what we all share and can all affirm, not as radically different interest groups, but as common citizens. The focus on identity groups is what Lilla calls a disuniting rhetoric of difference. It exerts a centrifugal force that splinters the common good. In short, liberals have, quote, mastered the art of self-sabotage. For about two generations now, says Lilla, the most important lesson for us to learn is a failure of both the left and the right to define a common vision for all citizens. In the last pages of his book, he suggests four themes for a way forward. The priority of institutional over movement politics. The priority of democratic persuasion over aimless self-expression. The priority of citizenship over group or personal identity and the increased need for civic education in an increasingly individualistic and atomized nation. For a spirited discussion of Lilla's critique of identity politics, see David Remnick's interview in The New Yorker on August 25th, 2017. For movies this week, Dan reviews Won't You Be My Neighbor. This documentary movie about Fred Rogers and his television show for preschool children called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood has received uniformly rave reviews. In our age of violence and vulgarity, it is a shocking commentary on personal and civic kindness. Like many people in the theater, my wife and I just wept at times as we watched this ordained Presbyterian minister fulfill what he understood to be a sacred calling in an otherwise media wasteland. One of Roger's sons noted that for a man who spent his whole life in television, my dad really hated most of what was on TV. He thought it was horribly degrading for children. So it was an unlikely medium for a powerful message that, as Rogers said, love is the root of everything. Margaret Whitmer, one of the producers of the show, observed how, if you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite, you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, a simple set, an unlikely star. Yet, it worked. Indeed, it did. For his efforts, Rogers was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, along with numerous other rewards. And finally, for poems this week, The Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 15th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.